Well, good morning. Uh, so some of you may recognize the title of this lesson. Um, I preached a series of lessons at the beginning of 2018 that were uh, lessons on the theme of understanding the nature of the church. Um, sometimes there's lessons that I think are good to um, review from time to time, uh, lessons that can really help fundamentally establish who we are or some teaching that um, in the world is uh, more misunderstood. And, and the church is really one of those things that I think can be good to every few years just review what does the Bible teach about the nature of the church. Uh, Michael Valenzuela, before he moved away, um, really mentioned that he wanted to hear these lessons again. So uh, you'll have to blame him in part for uh, repeating these things. But on top of that, there's, there's a couple other things that have motivated me to um, re review these lessons and rework them a little bit. Uh, I mentioned with teaching on worshiping in spirit and in truth, the church right now here locally um, is very diverse. Um, we have a lot of different backgrounds. We're in a lot of different places in the maturity of our faith. Um, and I think even those of us who were here when these lessons were first taught would really benefit from hearing these again and really root us in a good understanding of what does the Bible actually say about the nature of the church. So I think just the nature of where we are is, is important. But with the lessons on worshiping in spirit and in truth, so much of really understanding what that looks like in its practical application is really tied and connected to the nature of the church. So the more we understand the importance of worshiping in spirit and in truth, it also magnifies the importance of understanding what the church is and what the role of the church is. So I want to start this lesson really simply. We're going to be, just like a couple years ago, um, kind of working progressively where we begin with just defining the church and kind of work on, okay, well, how do we see the church and its function, its design, its practice. So I just want to start the lesson with this question. How would you, how would you define the church, the word church? Um, I think we would all agree that with the church, there is an enormous degree of confusion um, and a lot of different ways that the world defines the church and how we see the church in its function and practice in the world. One of the difficulties with really understanding what the Bible teaches is oftentimes, like me growing up, um, you're having to sometimes unpack and undo misinformation that's been added on. And I want you to think about this. When Jesus in his ministry was teaching people, who had a harder time? Was it the people where you were starting from scratch and you were just kind of building a foundation really from, from new and just building from there? Or did Jesus have a harder time teaching people who already had deeply ingrained ideas they associated with God that were wrong? It was the latter. People who Jesus was just starting from scratch with, they had an easy time just understanding and grasping oftentimes what he was saying. But really when, when we have deeply ingrained ideologies or thoughts that we've associated with God, it can be really difficult to unpack those things. So I would encourage you this lesson, there may be points in the lesson that are difficult, but it's not because what the Bible says is difficult. It's really, it's the simplicity. And that simplicity may demand unpacking and letting go of wrong ideas that really shouldn't have been there in the first place that came from just um, hearing the wrong things or believing the wrong things. So how would you define the church? Um, and this isn't something I really want to um, 
answer for you. Just put that into your mind. How would you define the church? If somebody asked you, what is the church? Or what does the word church even mean? How would you define that? So Merriam-Webster's is a pretty good place to start for looking for definitions. And what we're going to find is defining this word is extremely important and really there's a lot of practical points that come from just understanding the term. But if you were to look in a dictionary, here's what you would find. A building for public or especially Christian worship. So by that definition, this building, for instance, would be considered the church. Um, Somebody might drive by the building and say, look, there is a church, right? So that's one definition. Another is a clergy or officialdom of a religious body, basically like people in a denomination who make decisions for that denomination. Um, People might say this like, the church has decided this. And what they're meaning is like people who are really high up within the organization have made a decision and now all of the people underneath are following that decision. Or a body, this is number three, a body or organization of Christian believers like um, the whole body of Christians, a denomination, or a congregation. Uh, this might sound close, but this actually, um, we'll see that this is really not actually right. Uh, public divine worship, number four. So that's using the word church kind of like a verb or an event. Um, So like the idea of um, church being public divine worship, it's like something we do. Like some people, I know this is going to sound silly, but some people say they're going to get their church on or something like that, right? So they're speaking of church as this event they participate in. Number five is like the clerical profession. So this might be like when somebody goes to a college and they want to get a profession in the church or they want to work for the church. Um, So people may be seeking uh, some kind of uh, job or teaching job, and they're referring to the people who are within the profession as the church. So these are, this is the gambit of English dictionary definitions. So the question is, are any of these definitions correct? And uh, I'll just answer it for you that uh, they're not. Surprisingly, when you look into an English dictionary, none, none of the definitions that you'll find actually align with a biblical definition of what the term church means. And so it's very important then to go back to just reading God's word and letting God define this term and how this term is used. And it gives us so much more clarity and simplicity with being able to use that term and think about the church. So we're going to do some things that seem kind of maybe nerdy. Um, but they're really important for a subject like this. We want to define this term the way the Bible defines it. And this isn't really a scholarly lesson. These are all things that we can find if we'll just look it up or investigate it a little bit. But the word church is from the Greek word. Um, I have no idea how to, you know, really read that, but that's, that's the Greek word there that in English you pronounce that ekklesia. Ekklesia is the Greek word that in the English will be translated church. What does this word mean? It's a compound word for one. This first part of the word ek means out and lesia means called. It literally means called out is what it means. And the Thayer's dictionary, Thayer's is like a Greek word dictionary. This is how we'll see this term used in the Bible. Ekklesia or church simply means a gathering of citizens called out from their homes. So again, called out 
A gathering of citizens called out from their homes into some public place or an assembly. So the word church literally means like a group, a group of people who have come together from various places into one place. An assembly, a bunch, a group of people. In the Septuagint, um, and if you don't know what that is, in Jesus' day, the prominent language was the Greek language. And so there was a very popular translation of the Old Testament scriptures that were used prominently in Jesus' day, and that we call that now the Septuagint. It's a Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, and the Septuagint was widely used all over the world in synagogues where the law was read and taught. So in the Septuagint, this word ecclesia is actually found 77 times. Look at Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10. Uh, we're going to look at some of these scriptures. And I've got these on the board for the sake of time, but if you want to turn in your Bibles there and maybe make some marks or notes in your Bible, I'd encourage that as well. But in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 10, I've, I've kind of cheated and highlighted it already, uh, where the word is. But this is Moses speaking to the congregation of Israel. He says, Remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, Ecclesia, the people to me, that I may let them hear my words. So, Think about the definition again. You've got this word literally mean to call people out of where they were, bring them together into one place. And you see, that's what God is saying. Call out the people, assemble them from wherever they are, and bring them here to me that they may hear my words. Ecclesia, it's assemble the people. Deuteronomy 18.16, so this obviously is not all 77 times the word ecclesia is used in the Septuagint, but just some examples. Deuteronomy 18.16 is another place where it's used. This is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the ecclesia, the day of the assembly, the day when the people came together to hear God's word. Another curious place is Psalm 26, verse 5. So one thing we're going to touch on here as we move through this definition is ecclesia as a term referring to just a group of people is not inherently a religious word. It, it's not always used in reference to God's ecclesia, Jesus' ecclesia. So Psalm 26, verse 5, I hate the ecclesia of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. So obviously this is not talking about the congregation of Israel, the righteous congregation at least. This is dealing with an evil ecclesia, right? So it, even in the Septuagint, this was not a word that demanded righteous or godly association. It's simply a group of people, right? So those are some examples from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Ecclesia, uh, as you would imagine, is used more in the New Testament, and it's used 114 times in the New Testament. And just like the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, uh, ecclesia in the New Testament is also not always referring to Jesus as ecclesia. So most frequently, the, the grand majority of ecclesia, the, the word ecclesia being used, is used in reference to Jesus's. But I want to look at some of these examples in Acts chapter 19. If you would actually turn in your Bibles there, I've got these on the board again. But just so you can kind of like visually look through the text and kind of see what, what we're talking about here. So in Acts chapter 19, uh, in verses 11 through, um, 11 through 22, 
Paul is in Ephesus teaching the word of God. The word is spreading. But then in verse 22, about that time there occurred no small disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades. And he said, men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. You see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. Not only is there danger that this trade of ours fall into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis be regarded as worthless, and that she whom all of Asia and the world worship will even be dethroned from her magnificence. When they heard this and were filled with rage, they began crying out, saying, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! The city was filled with confusion, and they rushed out with one accord uh, into the theater, dragging along Gaius and Ar- Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. So in verse 32, you have this riotous crowd that's gathering because uh, the silversmiths have begun kind of like stirring the people up against Paul and the teaching of the gospel. And in verse 32 then, referring to the riotous crowd now, it says, So then, some were shouting one thing and some another, for the ecclesia was in confusion and the majority did not know for what reason they had come together. If your Bible is like mine, you may even have a little number or some kind of indicator of a note by that word assembly in your Bible. So I'm using the New American Standard. I've got the number one on my Bible's page next to assembly. And if you follow that number one to its place in your notes, my translation says ecclesia. So you'll see within your notes that the word that's used for church is being used for this riotous crowd. Same chapter, verse 39. In verse 39 it says, but if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in the lawful ecclesia. There's that word again. And this isn't referring to Jesus' church or group or people. This is referring to a town council group, right? Verse 41 uh, at the end says, after saying this, he dismissed the ecclesia, the church, the group. So again, it's not always a word that demands that it's referring to God's people. It's a word that simply means a group of people, an assembly, a bunch even. So what's the point? The first main thing with this is how we use terms is influential and important. Uh, We see in the world, maybe on a negative example, like a negative example that makes like a positive point. Um, Don't we see in the world that people tend to view referring to their identity and words that convey something about their identity as very important, where if words and terms are used that are making a wrong association of identity, that tends to be, even in the world, a problem that people have. So in the church, we we read in the scripture reading in Matthew 16, the church belongs to Jesus. He died to build his ecclesia, his group. And so how we use terms referring to Jesus' ecclesia It's influential. We can influence people to have misunderstandings of the church reaffirmed into their own minds. We ourselves can strengthen wrong ideas about the church by, you know, reinforcing these truths of the terms we use. So we want to try as best we can to use terms that reflect the identity that God gives within his word. Again, church is not innately a religious word. Probably one of the most difficult things 
uh, even though it's a very simple thing about this lesson in defining the term, um, you, you read commentaries or um, different writings about uh, church and its definition. Um, I was reading one article. I'm not sure who the author was, but it was an article in Acts and the scriptures we looked at. And it was saying that the, the word ecclesia being used in that context really didn't seem right because it wasn't referring to Jesus' church. So it's like, well, this must be maybe an error. They didn't mean to use this word because, you know, church is a religious word. It's a word that refers to Christians. So maybe there was a mistake in the fact that this is the word that's here. Um, so these are deeply ingrained ideas that oftentimes we have that just really don't reflect the biblical truth. Church is not innately a religious word. It's just a collective noun referring to a group of individuals. And I know this might sound redundant, but we're going to see in a moment that this, it, this proves very important points and brings very important clarity in our understanding of what the church is. And just by definition, we'll see that we can make very easy conclusions about then what the church is not when we follow through on this definition. So church, not a religious word, just a collective noun referring to a group of people. And what that means is it depends on the context to determine the nature or the purpose of the way that the word is being used. And again, oftentimes we see church in the Bible most often referring to Jesus' group, but we still have to see the context to really understand the nature of how that term is being used and how we apply it. So the rest of the lesson I just want to define, okay, so let's look even more closely and specifically how do we define Jesus's group? Because Jesus's church, we'll see, is not a group of groups, it's a group of people. So how do we, in the Bible, how do we see God define this group of people that are his ecclesia? And really there's two main ways that we see the church defined in the Bible, two main categories. The first is the universal or worldwide church. Um, if you still have your Bibles open to it, Matthew chapter 18, or 16 rather, Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus said he would build his church. Now, is Jesus talking about a group just in one earthly location? Or was he talking about he would build his group, his people, everywhere throughout the world, wherever they are? Look at Hebrews chapter 12 as well. Um, just another passage that you see referencing the universal or the worldwide church. Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verses 22 through 24. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 through 24. So here the writer says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So in Hebrews chapter 12, not only is it referring to Christians who are living, but you notice this is dealing with the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So what we see when we see ecclesia being used in a worldwide or universal sense, We'll see it referring to all of the saved, even of all time, even those who may not be alive. In the next lesson, we'll look at 1 Thessalonians as an example of this. So this, this is one way that the church is used, in a universal or a worldwide wide sense. 
And this church, if you remember Ephesians chapter 4, verse 4, there is one body, one worldwide church, only one. And it's not that there's one group of groups, but that there is one group of people who are in fellowship with Christ. So there's a universal or worldwide church. Universal, also, there's another way of saying that, and this can easily sound wrong, um, but universal, the, there's another word for that, and that's Catholic. So if I said, yeah, I'm a part of the Catholic Church, you may like, say, well, how could you say that? No, you're not. But what they did is the Catholic Church, the denomination Catholic Church, took that term, and some men wanted to say, you know what, we are going to be the universal church. We're just going to call ourselves the universal church so that anybody who you know, wants to be a part of the universal church needs to join us. But what we're going to see, that's just, that's just not possible by definition of the word. Man doesn't have authority to define who is within the universal church. What they did is they took that term and gravely misapplied it. And oftentimes you just need to take terms back and just use terms in their proper, proper definition. So the second way we see church used is in a local sense or a geographical sense. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. And one of the interesting things that's really helpful about 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2 is that you actually see the local church and the universal church in one verse, and you actually see the distinction between the local and the universal in one verse as well. So I'll put that forward, and as I read this, just try to think if you can spot the transition between the local, the universal, rather the geographical, and the worldwide. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. So notice Paul is referring this letter to the church of God, which is at, geographically, the location of Corinth. But this local group is also a part of this worldwide group of saints, Christians in fellowship with Jesus. So you have this worldwide group, but also this localized geographical group who are working together. And we'll begin in the next lesson more to define the local church. But here we see a local and universal reference. Uh, look at Galatians. So you've got First and Second Corinthians and then Galatians. Galatians chapter 1 and also verse 2. Remember, there's only one worldwide church, just one. There's one body. Ben, look at the language that Paul uses in reference to the local church here in Galatians chapter 1, verse 2. Um, so it, we'll start in verse 1 with it being a part of a, a sentence. But Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. So there's one universal church, but even the region of Galatia did not just have one local congregation. There were multiple groups of Christians. And so in Galatia, he said to the churches of Galatia. So while there's only one universal church, obviously there are multiple assemblies in different locations. 
And the thing about these assemblies in multiple locations, what we find out in Corinthians and what we find out in Galatians and in many other epistles is that in local churches, there are some saved people and very often some who may not actually be saved who are a part of that local group. And in a future lesson, we'll deal more specifically with that distinction that in the universal church, there are no unsaved people at all. The people who are a part of the universal church are only people who are in fellowship with Jesus. However, in the local church, that may not be the case, right? And it certainly wasn't the case in the Galatia letter. You don't have to read too far into chapter one to find that out, right? So here's a point really quickly before we look at the last part of the lesson at just trying to visualize this to maybe help with even more clarity on this. Most problems in understanding the nature of Jesus' church, and I don't just mean like intellectually understanding, uh, most problems in like the practice, the structure, the leadership, the worship practice of a local church, nearly everything involved in anything wrong that is being done in a local church is fundamentally from not recognizing the distinction between these two ways that the church is defined and understanding the distinction between the, the function of a local group as they're working together compared to individuals universally and what they are called to be and do functionally. So most problems in understanding the nature of Jesus' church and a local church's practice, its practices of worship, its work, whatever, is very often from not recognizing this distinction. And so we want to be careful to recognize the differences. And again, these are things that in the Bible are actually extremely simple, but it's just a matter of oftentimes unpacking misinformation and wrong ideas that the world obviously puts into our minds if we're not careful. So we're going to spend the rest of this lesson defining the universal church. The next lesson, we're going to work on understanding the local church and the way that we can picture the local and universal church together and bring more clarity there. But for now, we're just going to focus the rest of the lesson. What is the nature, more specifically, of the universal church, the worldwide church? And I kind of want to start this with what the universal church is not. And I think this will be very helpful. So is the universal church composed of denominations? Um, when I'm talking to people, something I've heard very often, these misunderstandings, just as a side note, oftentimes come out in our language, right? So usually the way people talk about the church reflects a serious misunderstanding of it. So what I've heard people say quite frequently, they'll say, the church today is just so divided. And what they're saying is there are so many groups who believe and practice so many different things, the church today is so divided because of that. Or they might say something similar but opposite. The church just really just needs to figure out their differences and just come together. And what they mean is the Pentecostals, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, the Catholics, the Baptists, etc., etc., etc. They just all need to work on coming together as one big denomination, right? Um, and you may remember even in Scripture... There, were, uh, there was a letter written to Christians who were kind of try beginning to think denominationally. They were beginning to segment themselves into groups and kind of brand themselves after different names. 
You remember at the beginning of 1 Corinthians where Paul says, some of you are saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos. Has Christ been divided? And so what Paul is trying to do is to get them back to the roots of these ideas and not segment themselves from, from names, with names or with people, but instead to just recognize that the basis of our universal fellowship starts with being identified with Christ. And remember, church as a word is not a group of groups. And so if we were to picture this in a different way, it would be connected to Jesus is the Presbyterian church and then connected to the Presbyterian church are little churches underneath that, that bigger church and then underneath those churches then are individuals who are a part of that church. And that betrays the fundamental definition of the word church. Jesus built his group and the church are those who individually are in fellowship with Jesus. It is not a group of groups. Another consequence of thinking that way, and this will make sense as we kind of repeat these ideas and work through this, if a group is what is associated with Jesus fundamentally, then everybody, then that group, if that group is attached to Jesus, then all you have to do is be a part of that group and you're good. Because if the group is directly attached to Jesus, then everybody within that group, in effect, would be attached to Jesus. That's just, it's not how the word is defined. It's not how the Bible defines it. So another way is, is the universal church composed of local churches of Christ? So just kind of as another note, there is a church of Christ denomination, and that's not what we are. But people can think denominationally about the church in this kind of way. Um, somebody might say, I'm Church of Christ, or the Church of Christ teaches this, this, and this. I've even been called in the past a Church of Christ preacher, and I'm not, I'm not a Church of Christ preacher. And so there's wrong ideas we can have about local churches as well, and thinking that local churches are uh, the universal church, but that's also not the case. Um, this can also happen with negative, broad generalizations. Um, somebody recently got Eve and I into contact with somebody who um, needed some encouragement. And when I messaged them, what they said is they were not likely to look for a church of Christ to attend. That if they're going to attend a church, they're saying they're kind of open. If I'm going to attend a church, it's not likely to be a church of Christ. So just in hearing that, can you hear the fundamental problem? They're, they're thinking of the Church of Christ like a denomination, when really what they're saying, if they're using the term correctly, is I don't want to be a part of God's people because the Church of Christ is not a group and then another group and another group. It's simply God's people. So for someone to say, I don't want to be a part of the Church of Christ, ultimately they're saying, I don't want to be associated with the group of people who are Christ and who belong to him, Right? This can also happen in other negative broad generalizations. People can say the problem with churches of Christ is this, or the issue with the church of Christ, or what I don't like about the church of Christ is this. Fundamentally, that's, again, it's a misunderstanding of what the church is. The church is not a group of groups. It's individuals. So really what they're saying is, I have a problem with Christians. And when you read the New Testament, Christian groups locally there is very frequently serious problems. The more we understand the nature of the church, the more we understand we cannot make broad generalizations 
about what the church is or issues in the church. And often it reflects a grave deal of pride to make that kind of generalization. Do you really know what's going on in every local church all across the world to say the problem with the Church of Christ is? It's very pompous to make such a generalization. It's thinking much too highly of your own experience. I don't doubt that in local churches, people have very bad experiences with the people who are in that group. And they may go to another group. But you imagine, what if somebody goes to Corinth, right? They go to Corinth and, you know, it's just a disaster. And they say, this is a mess. I'm, I'm out of here. And then they attend Ephesus and the book of Revelation in its condition in Revelation. And they say, this is a loveless group. There's no love here. These people are so obsessed with sound doctrine, they have forgotten love. And then they leave there and they go to the Galatia region. They try to attend one of the Galatian churches and they see people saying, you must keep the law of Moses. They've had a lot of bad experiences. <laughs> so they may hold up their hands and say, you know what? The church is corrupt and these churches who call themselves by Christ, I don't want any part of it, right? It's a fundamental misunderstanding of the nature of the church. It's individuals, not local groups. And with individuals who make up local groups, there's always going to be difficulties to work through. So it's important we don't make broad generalizations that are in error. Another error is it composed of people who are dedicated to the church. And this may sound strange, but again, this can be reflected in language. Someone may fall away, and what someone may say is, so-and-so has fallen away from the church. Or this person who's follow, fallen away, we need to restore them to the church, right? Or someone might say, well, what does your church teach? And it doesn't matter what our church teaches so much as what does Christ teach? What does the word say, right? Our church may be teaching something wrong. The importance is what is the Bible teaching? What is God's word teaching? Our loyalty is not to a system of teaching, but to Christ and the teaching reflected in the Bible. And a lot of times with defining these things, there's, there's certain things that can sound almost like it's not the right way of defining things. Because again, there's... there's ideas that have been put into our minds about the church and into my mind, or again, unpacking those things can be difficult. You know, we'll, we'll end up coming to the same conclusions that most of us have come to over the years, but if we have to be careful to not come to correct conclusion using the wrong method to get there, right? So it is important, we'll see, and essential that we are a part of sound local groups, that we are teaching the truth, that we're being careful with God's word, but not because our loyalty is only to a group. And the church is not a mediator between man and Christ, right? So again, that oftentimes comes out in language. So the church is not composed of those dedicated to the church, and by being dedicated to the church, then they're connected with Jesus. Here's what we find with the universal church. Turn to Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11. And we'll see this... Again, more in the next lesson where we see the local and universal church um, in the Bible. But just starting in Acts chapter 11, what we see is the universal church is individual people. And the last time I gave this lesson, I had Greg, Stan, and Mary, and we still don't have anybody here named Greg, Stan, and Mary. So it's the same, same people. But Greg, Stan, and Mary, having a place in the universal church, are directly connected to Jesus himself, not through a group, but directly connected to Jesus. Look at Acts chapter 11, 
verses 19 through 26. Acts chapter 11, verses 19 through 26. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen, back in uh, Acts chapter 7, when Stephen was killed, and then in Acts chapter 8, the Christians from Jerusalem began going all over the regions, teaching the gospel. So that those who, uh, those who were scattered, they made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word of God to no one except to the Jews alone. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who came to Antioch and began speaking to the Greeks also, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a large number who believed turned to the Lord. The news about them reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas off to Antioch. Then when he arrived and witnessed the grace of God, he rejoiced and began to encourage them all with resolute heart to remain true to the Lord. For he was a good man and full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and considerable numbers were brought to the Lord. And he left for Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, and for an entire year they met with the church and taught considerable numbers, and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. So five times in this small paragraph here, we see individuals loyal to Jesus. Uh, Start in verse 20 and look at the end of verse 20. What were they preaching? They weren't preaching the church. They were preaching the Lord Jesus. And if you look at verse 21, what did they turn to? These are people who turned to the Lord. If you look in verse 23, he encouraged them to remain true to the church. No, he encouraged them to be true to the Lord. Look in verse 24, the very next verse. Considerable numbers were brought to the church. No, they were brought to the Lord. And then in verse 26, they were first called Christians. They were called Christians because what defined them, what identified them, was their loyalty to Jesus. And if we will understand fundamentally the importance of being devoted to Jesus, then everything else from that cornerstone can begin to fit in its proper context and its proper place, right? So next week, Lord willing, we'll see more clearly how the local church is uh, organized and designed in Scripture as well. But for now, the universal church are people who belong to Jesus. You know, and by appearance, you may look at this group and the Christians who are here, and by appearance, you may not see anything that of, of itself will draw you to the Lord. But that's because the church is not the draw. Jesus is the draw. The power of the message is not in the wisdom of men or the presentation of men. The power of God is that we preach Christ crucified. To some, a stumbling block. To others, it's foolishness. But to those of us who understand that message of our unseen Savior, we understand that there is power in Jesus to convert the heart. And so I urge you, if you are not a part of the church that Jesus built, if you are not connected with him, understand who it is who's calling you and what he's calling you into. And if you will respond to the message of the gospel, God himself will add you into his body to receive the blessings of eternal life reserved for those who turn to him. If there's anything we can do for you at this time, please bring it forward while we stand and sing.